Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Ezra Lip Hour, more or less. Um, I hope everyone has been doing well. I uh, didn't put out an episode this past week. I just uh, needed some time to work on some other stuff, uh, some some promo for my uh, my new band, Magic in the Other, which uh, if you follow me on social media, I've been yakety yakking about all the time, but it's it's a new band and it's really uh, important to me. And um, yeah, so that's, uh, and again, until I, I have, uh, you know, audible.com or uh, Blue Apron or Squarespace decides to sponsor this podcast, um, I may as well talk about my own project. I think, I think that's a plug that you guys can live with. Um, if you're coming back here every week, which I so appreciate. Anyway, uh, today on the podcast, I have the amazing Mr. Steve Poltz. Hopefully when I play a show, people have then committed to like, they're like, oh, I love this guy. And then by the end, they got their arm around somebody and they're singing This Land is Your Land. And they would never do that. They're like the people that would not have sang such a socialist song as This Land is Your Land. I guarantee you all have them with their arm around some hippie liberal with dreadlocks singing This Land is Your Land smiling. Because I'm not trying to divide the audience. I'm trying to bring people together. And I'm very excited about this episode. Um, We had a great, great conversation, uh, a very thorough and in-depth conversation. Uh, if you don't, if you're not familiar with Steve Poltz, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm hesitant to say too much because A, there's, he's such a complex, in-depth character that I, I feel like words won't, won't do him justice. Um, B, he has uh, a very extensive history in the, in the music industry, um, both being a, independent solo troubadour, uh, singer, songwriter, entertainer, um, for years, but also has had lots of commercial success. Um, he co-wrote, uh, one of Jewel's biggest hit songs, You Were Meant For Me, and collaborated, um, with her for many years and, uh, toured with her and has had his music in, in films and he's been in films and he was voted San Diego's most influential artist of the decade in in 2000, the San Diego Music Awards. Um, But he's kind of also this, uh, I I could go on about his bio or you could look him up. He's also this really larger than life character to me um, where he is, yes, he's a singer-songwriter. I should also mention he he co-founded the band The Rugburns. uh, a long time ago in San Diego, and they had uh, very uh, some some success with that too. Um, but he's been doing uh, his own thing for many years, and I would say he's um, has this great quality. And this is just my personal experience, um, where he can be simultaneously very funny and entertaining. And then also, uh, without missing a beat, be singing a song that just is completely profound and makes you uh, stop and think and appreciate life and appreciate the people around you. Um, And he kind of straddles that line between silliness and and heartfelt stuff, but but it's it's really not more straddling a line. It's really he, 
he's able to combine it kind of effortlessly. Um, and I, cause I think that's just who Steve is, at least from my outside perspective. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm a big fan and, um, it was great to, to have a conversation with him. We had met a couple times, um, but never really, uh, you know, had, had significant interaction where, where I think Steve might've remembered me, although we did, <laughs> we did play a couple, uh, songs together at a high Sierra in 2012, um, randomly on the big meadow stage, which is where I first became aware of Steve. And he kind of, I was playing with this, this artist, David Garza, um, who I had just met a few minutes before the set, I was playing drums and then Steve sat in for a couple songs and just kind of waltzed up there and started kind of going crazy and dancing around and singing and, and, you know, and I didn't know any of the songs anyway. So, and then we were playing uh, one of Steve's songs all of a sudden. Uh, and I was just like, who is this guy? Uh, this guy is, is crazy. Um, but seems really cool. Um, and then as I got to see him, uh, you know, a little bit more over the years, um, I had gotten more familiar with his material. I, I, I really, um, yeah, he's, he's one of, he's one of my favorites. He's one of the greats. Uh, I, I really believe that. So, um, uh, please just don't take my word for it. Just go check him out. And, and I had a lot of fun diving into YouTube and, um, to, to check it, to do some pre-research for this, uh, conversation. And, and, and it was a fun journey getting to hear some stories and, and songs I hadn't heard. And so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. He's very prolific with social media, so you should follow him. He's always posting really fun videos and pictures and blogs and stories and has been doing so for years. And we talk about that and we talk about, um, the music industry in its various contexts. We talk about, uh, why he prefers to be independent. Um, we talk about some of, uh, his influences and mistakes, uh, early on and crossing the line with audiences going too far. It's, it's a really great conversation. Oh, and spoiler alert, at the end of this interview, he sings this beautiful song that, uh, at the time was a private Steve Poltz concert for one that I was, uh, felt very fortunate to receive. But of course, I'm going to share that with you, uh, as well. So, um, without further ado, I'm going to leave it over to me again with the one and only Steve Poltz. Please enjoy. What are you doing? I'm just finished my brekkie, sipping a cup of tea, getting ready to face the day. I was listening to a song that I wrote last night with the Mastersons. I don't know if you know them. Uh, the Mastersons, no. Who, who's that? That's Chris and Eleanor. Um, they're Steve Earle's band. They okay. The Dukes and the Duchesses, and they also have their own project. And uh, they're, but we have a bunch of co-writes we've done. So they're in Nashville for a couple days, and they live in Los Angeles. But they're rehearsing with Steve Earle for this new record he's got. So they wanted to write a song with me. Hmm. So we banged one out last night, and we're up till two in the morning. It's a cool song. Uh, what's uh, what's it about? Well, it's funny. Nobody even had an idea of what we were gonna write about, and I was on a 
I go on a walk in Nashville all the time to this park called Shelby Park. Okay. And uh, they called and we were going to go have sushi. And then they said they were early. They were half hour early. I said, oh, man, I'll run and meet you guys. So she said, no, you don't have to run. And then when they got here, they said, I think that's what we should call our song. You don't have to run. So uh, we wrote a song called You Don't Have to Run. It's pretty cool. Nice. It's a hit. Yeah. Uh, and is that, that's already, that's, because hits are, hits are like pre-established, right? It's like professional wrestling. Yeah. It's a smash hit. It's yeah, done. So I like, just made a million dollars last yeah, night. Your agent was like, okay. We we I I set it up. You're clear for a hit. So just give me yeah, it's gonna be out. all over radio. Awesome. No, you know what's weird is lately I've been listening to like people that get huge spins on Spotify, hmm. seeing what a hit is today to young kids. And there's this guy named Russ. This he's like a rapper, and is it's just he just goes by Russ R U S S. Okay. And uh, so I was listening to him yesterday. And, and uh, oh, he has what, a song that's got, he has this song that's gotten a hundred and four million spins. I'm gonna find what it's called. It's crazy, man, and it's really good. Like I was into it. <laughs> like nice. it's just stuff that I would have searched out. But I I like to study things and go, why is this so big? Like because kids today, not that kids today are my market, but I like seeing what's going on in the world and. Okay, he has this song called What They Want. It's got 104,700,800 spins as of right now. Jeez. That is so many Spotify plays. Yeah. Like, to put it in perspective, Bob Dylan has a new album he just came out with, and his is about 60,000 spins. Sheryl Crow has a new record. Her highest spin is probably 70,000 spins. You know, it's been out a few weeks. This mm -hmm. guy's record... Is a hundred and four million. I mean, it just dwarfs what's going on. In, but wow, you, you read all the press about Bob Dylan and Sheryl Crow, and uh, like I was reading the Leftsitz letter, and Bob Leftsitz was talking about how Sheryl Crow was even on the cover of Parade magazine, like just so mainstream. Where you think something's going to be a smash hit, the old. I guess what my point I'm making is the old school business paradigm of publicity doesn't work it it we we're still stuck and inured to the past of that's how labels put things out but it's to quote bob dylan years ago there's something happening and you don't know what it is do you mr jones it's like and so it's kind of cool to look at what the young kids are doing because it's like there's this rapper and I mean, 104 million spins is so many. Like, I don't think I've ever had more than 20,000, you know? Right, absolutely. <laughs> like, yeah. well, well, what do you do to, uh, to stay relevant? Because I think that's a common thing for, uh, for artists, especially, you know, if you're in a, a couple well, generations above the young kids, you know? I don't worry about it. I just like to know what's going on. I, I can only be me, and so... To stay relevant, I just, I like to always write. I like to always have something new to do. So I have to please myself. And that's the kind of artist I am, though. I, I just I have to 
do it because it makes me feel good and it's real. And I have a great fan base and I, I'm almost, I feel like I'm still swinging for the fences. Like I still throw things out there. I'll come up with an idea and get really excited, record it, throw it out there. Sometimes make a video or just play it on stage. And I'm constantly talking to other musicians. Like I'm, I still love my job. Like I'm the luckiest guy in the world that I get to do this and I don't have to be the person who checks me in to the hotel at Homewood Suites or something, you know, late at night. And, uh, you're not that person. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm glad that I'm not the person that is working behind the desk at whatever. Oh, I see. I see. Oh, okay. I, I'm at the residence. Right. 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 And you know, God bless those people too. Like they're up at two in the morning when my sorry ass is getting in off of the road and just checking in. And it's like, I'm really, I I think sometimes we forget how lucky we are that we get to do this. Mm -hmm. And so I, I constantly remind myself that, wow, I get to play here. And maybe this is just as good as it gets for me is, you know, I'm going to play to a hundred people in Halifax Saturday night coming up. The show's sold out. A sellout's 120. And then we had a second show and that one's just about sold out. It makes you feel good because it says sold out, but then I'm not Russ. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, when I look at that, it's like, it, it keeps you very humble because just when you think you're doing good, there's always somebody who's above you. And, you know, I'm sure Bruce Springsteen still feels that way. Like, why is he not selling out stadiums anymore? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, Bob Dylan, why isn't he Russ? He's only, he doesn't have half as much. So, yeah. But, you know, we're artists and we do it. And if you're doing it to become famous or for the numbers, then you're probably never going to be happy. So you have to learn to find happiness because you're going to always be able to compare yourself to other people. And that's not going to make you feel that good because somebody's always going to be doing better. You talk to a musician, especially in my world, which is like, I guess you'd call it, I'm kind of a troubadour world. Like I'm in the folk world and the jam band world. I'm in both of those kind of straddling because jam band festivals will have me and folk festivals will have me. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I would hear about people getting this cruise. It's called Kayamo. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. Okay, it's spelled C-A-Y-A-M-O. And it's a, I, I guess you would call it an Americana cruise. So it's a lot of Americana bands like John Prine and, and Americana artists. And, um, uh, Lyle Lovett, Jason Isbell, Emmylou Harris, and pretty big names and it's this cruise ship and it'll go on a different cruise every year around February. And it's probably been going on for 10 years and it sells out instantly. (laughs) And man, I've wanted to do that cruise ship and I've had friends do it. And you know, you have your agent submit and you go, Nope, they passed on you. And it's just the business we're in. And I finally got it this year. So I'll be doing February. And it's like, you get these little victories. And I think that's, what keeps me going is I still believe there's another great gig around the corner or a great festival. Mm-hmm. It's almost insane when you think about it. It's like, I mean, here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm not young man anymore and I'm still swinging for the fences and still I'll make a punk rock song and I'll make any kind of song. I just want to make art. And I guess the bottom line is, is, 
I like to see the audience smile and make people happy. So maybe that's just as good as it gets for me. And so you have to learn to kind of be happy where you are. And, and you must have, you must have a certain level of appreciation and satisfaction if, if you could continue doing this for so many years. Oh, I have a lot. I get so much joy out of it. I really, I get, I reach highs on shows that I just can never get in life. And I'm, in a certain way, I'm kind of addicted to the rush of it. And when I'm off of the road and I make a bowl of oatmeal, nobody claps for me. <laughs> on stage, it's like, you know, people are cheering and I'm constantly taking risks. Mm -hmm. Like I would die if I used a set list. Right. I wrote a set list out and I was like, this is the set I'll be playing the whole tour. Like, um, you know, Leonard Cohen, he would do the exact same show every night even to the point of where he'd kneel down on one knee and take his hat off he had that marked out on stage like theater which this i think is, is really cool you know i think that's cool because it's almost like meditative then when he did his shows like almost like a form of meditation he knew exactly what was going to happen what he was going to say the exact same story but i'm more of like <clears throat> i want to riff on things and uh and make mistakes and some stuff isn't going to work. Some is. You're, so, you're very uh, present with the audience, I would say. Yeah. I, I have a, a lot of kind of Robin Williams mixed with a folk singer <laughs> where I want to riff on stuff and go off, you know, and also, and maybe a little bit of Jonathan Winters too, where I want to, I want to take it to areas where I scare myself because I just did something that was, I thought I was almost going insane. <laughs> so, what what was that? Like that's happened many times where I'll do something on stage and I just start becoming a character and then I can't get out of it. And I'm like, whoa. And I'll tell the audience, I think I'm flipping out right now. I need to chill out. But usually I'm kind of, I, usually I know where I'm going with it. But I'm, I'm always experimenting. And like I said, some stuff just does not work. Like I'll say something and it's just like falls dead. Yeah, what would, uh, yeah, so I'm curious about that because I was I was actually listening to um, a live recording recently, and and you were talking about, or maybe it was a, you were telling a story and and talking about um, how you were able to envelop an audience, but kind of you know you have to ease into it. Obviously, throughout the course of a show, you can't just immediately expect them to be uh, on the same wavelength as you. But and then you made a reference to. Uh, you know, but by the end of the show, you can basically get them to shout out things and, and do all this stuff. But, you know, once in a while, I, I maybe took it too far. And <laughs> I'm curious what what would uh, for, for you, what would be in that category of, of, of going overboard with an audience? Well, when I was younger, I used to get invited to play these shows that were in listening rooms. And I was in the rug burns. And so I was playing in bars and there was this whole folk world going on that I didn't know about. And the shows were very precious and people were coming through like David Wilcox and John Gorka. And these were like in the eighties, I guess it would be late eighties, big folk people that were good in that world. And the shows were in these pristine listening rooms. And I remember one time my friend, played his show there like he got it was in a masonic temple 
and they rented it out. And the woman who put on these folk shows had that. And, and this friend of mine had me as a special guest. And rather than play songs, I brought out Twinkies and Ding Dongs and I got undressed on stage and rubbed them all over my body. <laughs> and I said it was performance art and I was singing some weird song to it. And people were horrified. Like yeah. I thought it was a good idea. I didn't run it by anybody. And then um, she never had me back for a show again. Like she was just like, you're an idiot. And yeah. then like another time I was on stage in front of probably 10,000 people and it was at the height of Jules' fame, and it was in San Diego, our hometown, at the Coors Amphitheater. And I was the opening act on all those tours, so it would go Rusted Root, then me. So Rusted Root would start the show. I'd go in the middle, hmm. play like a 35-minute set. Rusted Root were bigger than me, but I was like a rodeo clown in the middle, kind of. Okay. And then Jewel would go on, and I was in her band, and then... So some family had written me and said, hey, our daughter is in ninth grade and she just got on the, the dean's list and got straight A's. And she's a big fan of yours and Jules. And we were wondering if you could make mention of it on stage. And I said, sure. So I just went out and I was like, well, I'll get her a gift and I'll do it during my set. And so. I came up with this whole thing, but I didn't run it by anybody. And this was at the Coors Amphitheater. And I went and bought a 12-pack of Lucky Lager beer. And I wrapped it up in, like, girly birthday. No, congratulations, girly pink stuff. So it was all wrapped, so you didn't know what it was. And then I said to the audience during my set, I said, I'd like to invite um, Teresa up here to the stage. Come on up. And so... She comes up on stage in front of 10,000 people. And I go, she got straight A's. And I mean, like mothers are crying. They're like, this guy is the sweetest guy <laughs> in the world. You know, I'm celebrating the fact that she reads. And then I go, and so I didn't know what to get her because like she's in ninth grade. She's too old for a Barbie doll. I, I, I got confused. So I got you this. So in front of the whole audience, she opens it up and it's a 12 pack of Lucky Lager. It's not even Coors. And then I say on the mic, I figured... Since this place is named after Coors Light, which is already a shitty beer, why not go <laughs> shitty all the way and get Lucky Lager? So here you go. Good job. So she's like, her face is red. She hugs me. And people are not laughing, right? Really? Like, like 10,000 people not laughing, but some people are laughing. But like, <laughs> yeah. this, but probably very few. And it, next thing I know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving are protesting like for the whole week outside Coors Amphitheater. Ah. I'm on the front page of the entertainment section of the San Diego Union. Singer's beer joke falls flat. And then I'm in San Diego Magazine, the monthly issue that comes out once a month. On the year-end issue as bonehead move of the year. <laughs> I got hate mail from people. So it's like, and if you were to say, would you do it again? I'd say, hell yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. I have this great story, but it's like, um, and you probably, <laughs> you got a little bump of media attention, which, you know. Yeah. Um, like, I didn't know that was all going to happen. So, like, I guess, like, I've just done stupid things. And then other things totally are successes. But I've wanted to always remain kind of fearless on throwing things out there. I, I didn't want to do, be like, I didn't want to do things just for shock value. Yeah. I wanted to sing songs and do it all. So those were like shock value ideas, I guess. And as I've gotten older, I just 
I've obviously collected a lot more songs along the way and now created, I think, what is more of a cohesive show. Like when I was in the rug burns, I used to walk outside of the bar with the microphone because I would get sick because we'd be so drunk and I would vomit into this planners outside and I would mic it so the audience could hear it. I go, you guys want to hear me throw up? And they'd be going, yeah. And then I'd come in and ram the mic stand through the mirror, like a big Guinness mirror and smash it, rip the curtains down. And then I'd come in the next morning to get all my equipment because we'd be so drunk. And the guy was from Ireland. He goes, well, Steve, you're supposed to make $250 for the gig, but you did $267 of damage. So I'll just take it out of next week's pay. And you'll start with the deficit down of about $243 or whatever it was. Minus that, he goes, could you try not to break things up? You make some money here. You're drawing a big crowd because people would line up to get in because the shows were just insane. It sounds and, like, uh, uh, like punk rock, but I know it was, the music <laughs> wasn't. Yeah. Well, we were playing all the punk rock clubs. and So we were, the Rugburns were in all the indie clubs, you know? Mm-hmm. And then when we started touring, we were... We would have some songs that were just flat out slamming punk rock, like Sky Fucking Line of Toronto. And then we would do beautiful folk songs. And I've still never quit that. Like, I want I want to be able to play whatever I can. Mm-hmm. And that has also hampered me in my career of people saying, well, I don't know what how to label you. And I go, good. Like, my heroes were, you know, like Frank Zappa and, and different people were. But... I also like, I didn't just like Frank Zappa, I liked James Taylor. And mm-hmm. I liked Pistols. And I loved uh, Richard Pryor and Robin Williams and um, Steve Martin. Like, I kind of liked everything. So I thought, why can't it just be entertaining and it can encompass everything? Right now, I'm going to do a punk rock song called I Want My Fucking House Back. Now I'm going to do a song that I had in the movie Notting Hill with Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts. It's called I Love Everything About You. And just have people go, is this guy for fucking real? <laughs> so. <laughs> But like, but 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 you are. I mean that, and that's. I think that's the whole. That's the whole point. Is that it's not. People don't go see you because they want to see a folk artist or a storyteller. It's like they go see Steve Poltz because you are Steve Poltz and you're the only one that can do what you do. And 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 it's you. You know, you're you're, you're your most authentic self. Like it's really fun. Like when I memorized the monologue from the Godfather that Hyman Roth did. Like I really worked hard on that. And I was like, that's going to be part of my show. I'm going to do a scene from the Godfather. And then I learned a scene from uh, Big Lebowski. And right now I've been memorizing the monologue. Greed is good from the movie wall street that Michael Douglas did. It's this famous monologue about greed where he's a wall street guy and he's saying why greed is good. And I feel like that's a good one to learn right now. Mm-hmm. Cause Michael Douglas is just, he was so fantastic in that movie. And a lot of times people tell me, you know, your voice kind of sounds like Michael Douglas. And so ah, <laughs> I hear that. I do hear so that. I, I'm just going to go for it. Yeah. Learn his inflections. And because it's so fun because I get to do these readings. And uh, so you just intersperse them in, into, your, into your performances yeah. in between songs. Oh, it's so exciting that because in my mind, I'll know I've been working on something. I'm going to just do this thing one time i came out on stage and opened my show with pom-poms doing a pom-pom routine i made up to um the song oops i did it again britney mm-hmm. spears mm-hmm. and that was super fun because the audience and it didn't work which was even better so i was <laughs> sweating 
There's nothing better when something doesn't work and then you tell the audience, well, that didn't work. I I, I think there's, I know, I know, I think, and, and you know, I've talked about this on the show before too, but like, I feel like there's a certain amount of vulnerability you exhibit, not just you, but one would exhibit when, when they have that kind of attitude of, of taking risks on stage and just owning up to them. And I feel like that is the kind of show I want to go see. And, and I do too. Yeah. Me too. I would rather see you come out in pom poms and like fall flat than like some, you know, uh, pre rehearsed thing where you're going to get down on one knee at the same time every night. No disrespect to Leonard Cohen. He's amazing. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, I feel like that's, that's why I go see live music. Otherwise, you know, you could watch the show on YouTube and it's the same thing, you know. But, but being in a, in, a, in a room with people and not knowing what's going to happen from on any side of the the stage is is thrilling to me yeah i want danger mm-hmm. <laughs> i want to walk across tables when it's a seated show and people have their drinks on tables i want to walk across the tables and watch the tables wobble where they almost tip over and people are completely freaked out i learned that from country dick montana who was in this band called the beat farmers and uh, he came to see me play once and i was just standing there and after the show he said he put his arm around me. He's now dead. And he was like larger than life. And uh, he goes, it's a big stage scumbag. Use it all. Hmm. I've never forgotten that. I was like, yeah. and I remember I repeated it. And my voice was like higher than his because he had this deep voice. So he goes, it's a big stage scumbag. Use it all. And I look at him and I go, it's a big stage scumbag, comma, use it all. I was like writing it down. <laughs> like, like I, like I was Moses with some tablets or something. <laughs> However, so so correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say that you're not just trying to. Uh, it, it's not just about like challenging or or shocking the audience all the time. Like you, you I mean, I'm I'm guessing you kind of want to straddle this line between knowing that they're with you and inviting them into your performance being, you know, that you're all on the same team and also challenging their perceptions. You know, it's not just like you want to go out and vomit on stage every night. Not that you do that anymore and, and shock them and have them, but like you want them to be on your side as well. Right. Yes. And I've said this a lot to people that I read an interview once with Huey Lewis and it was in Rolling Stone. And it was like the greatest quote. And so Huey Lewis is my, I would say Huey Lewis is my guru because this is the one line I truly believe in. He said it in an interview. He said, when Huey Lewis and the News started playing, they were a cover band like in Menlo Park or somewhere in Northern California. And they played up there and they were playing all these bars and they were doing cover songs. And then they would do a new song that they had written and they wouldn't tell them that it was one they'd written and they would they would wait till the audience loved them and then mm. they'd throw that song in then they keep playing and then people would come up and say what was that song i want a new drug and then they go oh that's ours and they go that's awesome and Huey Lewis called it infiltrate then double cross mm. and it's the most great like my words <laughs> i live by so yeah getting back to what you said you want to get the audience on your side you don't want to offend them yeah, look, I want to take them on a journey. And by the end, I want there to be redemption in the show. I want yeah. it to be like a church. I want them arm in arm 
people would never stand arm in arm with a stranger. I can get them to do things they would not do. And so by doing that, I have to infiltrate. And they're like, oh, this guy's sweet. This is nice. And then next thing you know, once they've committed, it's kind of like a Trump supporter. He could do anything. He could do anything now. Like, And he's even said that he could shoot somebody and his people would still like him. And I think people, once they commit to liking something, they, they just committed. They like you and they're going to be with you. But you have to you have to get them to like you. And uh, that's the thing about politics is like, you know, I loved Barack Obama. Now, people could tell me, you know, he had a lot of bad policies with the drones and killed a lot of people. And I'd still say he's the best president I ever had. I don't want to hear them say that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I love Barack Obama. Like, I just I love him as a person. I wish I could have dinner with him. I think. He's a good man. I love his wife. I love his kids, well, and I think he's the best president I've ever had. But that's just my opinion. So, so but how do you how do you reconcile those? Because I'm sure you 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 share a lot of those perspectives on on the policies that would be criticized. How do you how do you justify still loving him in in the face of that? Or maybe maybe you. I just say, well, he had to govern for all people. He did the best he could. He needed to get eight years in. He tried to enact as many policies as he could. He couldn't be completely radical because he would have been run out. Mm -hmm. So I feel like he was politically a genius, like to be able to straddle that line and get as far as he could. He even said it. It was like a slow-moving iceberg. Change doesn't happen overnight. Like from when Martin Luther King was to where we are now, you know, you might not think you might think we're turning back the clock, which in some ways we are, but there's been major gains. It's not as bad as it was, you know. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. And so I I would just say, well, he in my mind he was great because I I want to like him. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. I yeah, in a way, I'd be turning a blind eye to certain things, and so. Hopefully, when I play a show, people have then committed to like they're like, "Ah, oh, I love this guy," and then by the end, they got their arm around somebody and they're singing, "This land is your land," and they would never do that. They're like, you know, there's some right wingers that probably come to my show. There probably are some people that like Trump because, you know, you figure out of a couple hundred people, somebody's gonna like that guy. Mm -hmm. He's our, he's our president, whether you like it or not. And yeah. so, the people that would not have sang such a socialist song as this on is your land. I guarantee you all have them with their arm around some hippie liberal with dreadlocks singing this land is your land smiling because I'm not trying to divide the audience. I'm trying to bring people together. There is a master plan I have. And my plan is I want, I want it to be like a church service. I want people screaming hallelujah. I want them to leave with a smile on their face and, and say, when are you coming back? I'm bringing so many people next time like that's the best compliment i get not your show was good but hey man when are you coming back i can't wait let me tell all my friends and that then i feel like i did my little whatever my little part was on this planet hopefully you know as i get older i'm doing better work like doing it for better reasons <laughs> what would what would be better reasons than the re your current reasons Better reasons is to 
we're in such a political divide and there's such a chasm and I'm just as guilty of it as many people I know of alienating a crowd, you know, by doing a song like, Hey God, I'll trade you Donald Trump for Leonard Cohen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's a funny song, a, kind of a cool little idea I came up with in Australia. It was, it was once again, an example of me not censoring myself and just going with it and writing it right before I went on stage in Australia, getting a standing ovation and me going, Oh, I might've tapped into something here. I just throw it against the wall and see what sticks. And then I did it in Florida and got booed. Uh, and somebody threw something at me and they flipped me off and walked out of my show. Wow. And I was like, okay, well, Florida is not <clears throat> Melbourne, Australia. Mm -hmm. And, Canada gets a standing ovation, but there's people here that get pissed, but there's people that are Trump fans that come out and they go, ah, oh, well, he's got a sense of humor. Who cares? I can mm -hmm. take it. I'll, I'll give him shit right back. But I, I don't want that to be, I don't want to be up there and just talk politics and make somebody feel alienated. I want, I want them to feel that we're all on the same team. So hopefully I'm learning to bring people together because that's what I really want to do. I want to, I want to leave a positive impact rather than a negative impact. And I want people to leave meeting new friends and starting a little community. And they met at my show that makes me very happy. So when I'm dead one day, they go, Oh yeah, we met at Steve Pulse's show. And now we're friends, you know, we're different politically. And, you know, maybe as I get older, I can get people to show up and go, I could go, hey, tomorrow we're going to go help out. We're going to clean up this area of town or we're going to help out this poor family. Republicans and Democrats together. Welcome. The only rule is we're not going to talk politics. We're going to do something good for somebody else. Yeah. Have you have you done that yet where you've incorporated uh, social justice action in, into in conjunction with your shows or music? Not enough. I've. Only I know that I've brought people together and people have told me that they're all friends now and they are different of uh, different political persuasions nice. by them coming out to flying out to see shows that I have, especially around my birthday bash. And I feel like we've started a community and I've, I, I have more that I could do rather than just being what you call a clicktivist. Uh, got it. That that I I hadn't heard that term, but is that just people that sign online petitions or what? What is a clicktivist? Yeah, like a clicktivist would be. Oh, I like that post you said about how Donald Trump's face is orange and he looks like an ape. Yeah, <laughs> I hit like and I forwarded it. That's a yeah. clicktivist. <laughs> yeah. What is you your know, what is your um what is your relationship with social media? I I know you're you um you're very prolific there i mean certainly obviously you're prolific in, in many senses with your with your writing and everything but you're constantly uh, it seems like you're posting videos and and posting new songs and blogs and little promotional clips and um i wonder <laughs> do you um it's do do you enjoy that and and what do do you like being uh having to 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 be so public with, with your life so often, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but, um, it, do you have any trepidation to just putting yourself out there like that all the time? Do you ever long for more privacy or just not being so in touch with that? 
I just, I actually really like it. I like waking up in the morning and taking a picture of something and then riffing on words. And then hopefully remembering to mention that I'm going to be in the area because I realize a lot of times, well, everybody, you're competing for eyeballs. And yeah. so everybody's got so much to look at. I can't tell you how many times I've done a post where I've said, thank you, Oklahoma City. God, last night was fun. And then there's always one person that goes, you were here? I didn't even know. And I'm like, fuck, what do I got to do? You subscribe to my mailing list. Yeah. You don't open this. You didn't look. I have the dates on my banner on my Facebook page. I'll do a post. So a lot of times it's just fun for me. I wake up and I'll write something and I can, I'm learning to surreptitiously also throw in because I realize people miss it. So I could say like, look at the trees are alive in Nashville. This, like if I was going to do something right now, I would take a picture. I'm looking at these trees. And this breeze is coming through and I could say, these trees are alive right now and the leaves look like fingers and they're grabbing at the blue sky and the birds are even scared of the fingers. It's almost like everyone's on an acid trip. I can't wait to take this acid trip tomorrow because I get to go to where I was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia and I get to play the Carl and it's going to be so fun. I'm going to see my aunties and uncles and hopefully eat some great lobster. Like that would be an idea of what I might do. Yeah you know, off the top of my head. And then, then people are like, Oh cool. You're coming to Halifax. I didn't know. I'm like, yeah, it's been listed for two months, but they, they don't know. And you can't get mad at that. You just gotta go. You're, you gotta remember they've got their own shit. They're worried about. Mm -hmm. They, you know, they're posting a picture of their baby. They got, they got to go to court. They got, they got a boss that's mad at them. They're paying bills. It's like, man, when people show up, I'm still, I still freak out when I go, whoa, I had 80 pre-sales? That means 80 different people had to maybe get a babysitter or took the night off. They could have stayed home and watched YouTube videos of me, and then that takes them down a wormhole of whatever else. They end up on some old Rolling Stones footage, or they could have watched House of Cards, the new seasons of on Netflix, or Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, or they could be watching Fargo you know, on Amazon and, and there, there's so many, we have so much choice. Like I rarely go to the movies anymore and I was a movie junkie, but mm. when I'm home, I have so much choice and I'm, I love binge watching things. And so I get it that, that being a musician today, we have a way to get our music out and disseminate it. And it's free for us to put it out there unless we pay for a Facebook boosted ad, but that's even pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. And then you know, before I had to get postcards made, print it up, mail them, and some would get returned because people moved. You know, I, I didn't have a way to do that. You'd have to get a record label to deem you worthy. And we were making cassette release parties in a garage. You know, we put cassettes out. It's like, I'm lucky enough that I've seen how it was. Yet now, because of the internet, we have all this choice. We're so wealthy with choice that when I get 80 pre-sales, I'm like, like at Halifax, I have 100 pre-sales for my show on Saturday night. I'm like, that is so cool. People plopping down 25 bucks a ticket to see me. I better put on a good show. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Do you, do you feel like, I, I haven't really explored this thought even myself, but just kind of off the cuff. Do you, do you feel like the, the live music experience itself has changed in, in the digital age? of social media like do you feel like the act of people getting in a room together 
and enjoying a show is maybe different than it was 20 years ago in, in some way? Or do you think that's pretty much hasn't, hasn't evolved or been altered? I guess maybe the way it's evolved is people will say, hey, I saw a clip of you telling this story about um, going to get a testicular ultrasound. Can you do that story? I'll have people request stories rather than songs. Yeah. Or, but you, no, I think people are still coming out. It's the one thing you can't replace is a live show. Mm -hmm. Like, I still believe, yeah, you can download hundreds and hundreds of my live shows on Bandcamp, but it's not going to replace the experience of sitting in a room next to people you might not know and the contagiousness of laughter and love and how you feel when you leave. Because I, I guarantee you when people leave the shows, they're like, oh my God, I needed this. Mm -hmm. And I still believe music is the, the age-old medicine from the days of people telling stories around campfires and troubadours. And I'm just another in a long line of people that are doing that, kind of like song and dance men and storytellers and bards, as we call them. And, you know, we're just troubadours going across. And it's... And so... I, I I don't think that part of it's changed. To answer your question, I I think it's the same. Was there anyone that uh, speaking of troubadours? Was there anyone um, you really looked up to when you were coming up that you were like, if I could only have a show like this person? Uh, yeah, there was a band like I mentioned, the Beat Farmers, mm -hmm. and Country Dick Montana was in them, and I used to go see them play, and he was such an entertainer. And I said, man, that would be so cool. It was before I was really playing out in bars much. That'd be so cool if I could sell out the belly up. And then eventually we did in the Rugburns. And then in the Rugburns, we were playing these crazy rock and roll shows. And, you know, it was really loud. And people wanted to hear Dick's Automotive, the song I wrote. That was just insane. And at the time, I was writing other stuff that were love songs. <laughs> And they didn't want that. And uh, then I went up to McCabe's Guitar Shop, which is in Santa Monica. I don't know if you're familiar with that venue. No. So McCabe's is this guitar shop in Santa Monica, California, in L.A. And it's like legendary. And in the back, they do shows. And they have all these guitars on the walls, but they put out like 200 chairs. And I'm talking, you, you, it's a veritable who's who of over the years like if you look at the history of who's played there everybody i'm talking everybody because it's los angeles you know and everybody's come through there and it's like a really prestigious show so i drove up from san diego once because i really liked loudon wainwright the uh third -huh. he had come out with this record and this is back in the days when you would go to tower records and they had this magazine called pulse p-u-l-s-e and they would have people would have their desert island discs on there, the ten discs they'd take. And I'd I'd read that magazine cover to cover because the internet didn't even exist yet. And so I I bought a Loudon Wainwright record. And when I think I feel like people listen to music differently back then because when we bought a record, we can only afford this one record. And so we would listen to every song, even the clunkers, and the clunkers would even grow on us, and we would learn all these B sides. So. I fell in love with Loudon Wainwright and I go, I'm going to go up to see him. I bought tickets and I was in the Rugburns at the time and I drove up and I took this girl with me and I remember watching him play and a light bulb went off in my head and I said, wow, 
there's my future. I can do this. I can do, I know I can do what he's doing. Hmm. Like not what he, I like not in a way of copying him, but I know I can be a solo guy telling stories, singing songs. Some are funny. Some are sad. Like I get it. I, I, and he really inspired me. And, uh, I told him that about a year and a half ago, I opened for him at the Kessler theater in Dallas. And, uh, he watched my set and was like, he loved, he loved it and loved the song folk singer. Uh, -huh, yeah. I love that song too. And I said, he goes, he was asking me about it and I go, you know what? You changed my life. And I told him when I went to see him and he was like, yeah, whatever. Walks away. No, he goes, <laughs> I was like, kind of waiting for that. I heard it a million times from people, you know what yeah. I mean? And he's not one to fake, like, he's not one to fake like he's really interested in it, but he was nice enough. But I, I was glad I got to tell him that. I think he paid more attention to me because I had toured with Rufus, his son. Okay. And so he knew that Rufus had spoken of me to him because Rufus used to call him years ago when we were on the road. Like 15 years ago, I did a whole national tour with Rufus Wainwright and Lisa Loeb. And Rufus would call his dad and he'd go, Dad, I met your illegitimate son. His name is <laughs> Steve Pultz. And to me, that was like the best compliment. Yeah. I, I, I really, and I to this day, I still idolize him. I love him. I'm not trying to be him. I, I almost don't like to watch him because I don't want to nick anything he's doing. I just, I want to be me. And then uh, John Prine, the same thing, really influenced me, and Randy Newman. I would say those three guys really, in different ways, all hit home for me. Because prior to that, I was listening to Jackson Brown and James Taylor. And they were more traditional, soft balladeers, like heartfelt stuff that was great. I still love it to this day, but... I really related more to John Prine who had this sort of wry sense of humor and he was telling stories and, and Loudon Wainwright who had this biting sardonic edge and then Randy Newman because uh, of his melodies and his words and, and his biting wit as well. I always loved those guys. Awesome. It's cool to have people that you really look up to and aspire to, you know what I mean? Like, I'm never going to reach their heights, but I'm going to, I love having them be my teachers and trying to learn things. How, how do you, how do you keep learning? I constantly am learning new songs. Like the other day I learned, if you want me to stay by Sly and the Family Stone. Okay. And so I, I, I listen, I'll listen. What I do is I listen to one song about 200 times. I become obsessed with one song. It's almost like I can only listen to one song at this time. So people go, what are you listening to? It's whatever I want to learn. So maybe I'm listening to a John Hartford song. I'm listening to a Sly and the Family Stone song. Or I'm listening to a monologue of Michael Douglas. But I, will, I have no problem listening to something 200, 300 times in a row and really getting inside the song and then kind of making my own version out of it. Um, I just recently was learning how to play Little Martha by the Allman Brothers off of the Eat a Peach record. Yeah, I think I, I saw the, like a, two seconds of that that um, Daniel Rodriguez posted from Elephant Yeah, Rebel. so I was just learning that, and that's fun. And I, and I 
And then I'm like, I get really into it. Like, do I do it in the key of D or E? Because the Allman Brothers did it in E, but it's easier for me to stay in open D tuning because it's lower. And I do a lot of songs D, A, D, F, sharp, A, D, which is the same as the E, B, E um, tuning of open E. Right. But then you, you put a lot of stress on your strings. I'm like, I might snap a string going up or I could capo it on the second fret, but capoing it. And then Leo Kotke does a great version of it where he does these harmonics. So I'm trying to like, I'm still trying to get it down. I did it the other night, but I I went to Clam Harbor and fucked up. Like <laughs> I made so many mistakes and I told the audience. In fact, I even told the audience, I used a line I heard once on a replacement bootleg because the replacements were like my favorite band ever. And I think they screwed up some song and Paul Westerberg goes, it sucked, but it felt good. <laughs> And so on stage, I got to use that line, which was pretty fun. There's truth to that sometimes. Yeah, sure. yeah, there really is. At least I did it. And I will tell you this. Every time I do a new song, no matter how many times I practice it, I'm going to screw it up. because, And I'll tell the audience it still has the new car smell on it. And mm. the only way I can get over it is to fail on stage. Because mm -hmm. when you you could practice all you want in your room. But high altitude training yeah. is when you play it on stage. Mm -hmm. That's really practicing. Yep. Playing it five nights in a row on the road, then you get it down because you lose your nervousness about it. Mm -hmm. Especially if it's an intricate guitar piece. Like there's, I grew up playing classical guitar, so lately I've been doing a lot of classical pieces in my show where I'll just, I do a lot of instrumentals lately. And there's a song called Adelita that's so beautiful. It's probably just two minutes long and it's gorgeous. And I've been doing that lately. Do you think you'll ever get tired of touring? No. Because <laughs> because no, I'll say I'll say for people that might not know this about you, but you're you're pretty much constantly on the road. Yeah, I'm say? addicted to it. Yeah. yeah, I'm 57. I'll be 58 in February, and um, it keeps me really youthful. Like, I mean, when I'm home, it's nice. I don't go I don't go stir crazy at all. Okay. Actually, I get really relaxed and I just play guitar and do heaps of co-writes with people because living in Nashville, everybody wants to write songs together. And yeah. I get to record songs because everybody's got a studio and make art and make videos. So I'm actually really, I get kind of sad when a tour starts. Like I know I'm leaving tomorrow and today I'm kind of bummed because I'm not ready to leave. Mm. But once I get on stage, and I get the first show out of the way, then I, it's, it's almost like I'm schizo. I just go, oh, yeah, this is what I'm doing. And I'm so happy doing it. And I know I'm not feeling that right now, but I know it's 100% given that I'll be happy, you know, that I go, I play a show, somebody pays me some money, and I'm on my way. It's like the height of capitalism mm -hmm. in the days of capitalism. Like, there's no safety net for me. So if I'm good, if I'm good enough, I'm going to make a living and people are going to want me back. It's kind of like the golden age of capitalism was if you were like a great shoemaker in New York, there would then somebody else goes, oh, this guy's making good shoes on Fifth Avenue. I'm going to open up a shop there. I'm talking like in the late 1890s or something. So this other cobbler opens up. He's like, oh, I can do better. And then he starts making shoes and somebody else does. And so capitalism was competition and the competition made good products. And then they would put a price on the product and you would have your law of diminishing returns of marginal diminishing returns. If it was food and you liked some sort of uh, burger they made, 
the second one wouldn't be as good because you already had one. So it like that's the same with music. It's like you got to get good enough because there's other people that are doing what you're doing. And so competition, I don't really compete with people, but I compete against myself. But in a way, there's a bunch of people doing what I'm doing. So I don't get paid if I'm not good. So going back to that whole model of like the golden age of capitalism, if somebody made a good hat, another paladin would come in and he'd be the hat maker. And then you, that's how we got these good products. Whereas if it was just like a communism, if it was just a communist society and the government's making everything, it's like, where's the impetus? Because who's, who's going to really, it's not their own personal business. It's for the country. And so if you look at maybe what, with Marxism, what they were talking about is, well, it's for the good of the country and we're all going to work together as a unit. I don't know that that makes better products, but then there's winners and losers in capitalism. And that's the whole inherent flaw within the whole business model. And I don't know of anything better, but in capitalism, then one, the one shoemaker then gets gobbled up by a conglomerate who goes, Oh, I'm going to be a monopoly now. And I'm put open up Clark's shoes everywhere. And I'll get the shoes made over in India because I can get the products cheaper and I can get these people to work on it. We don't care about that. They're dying it with these dangerous dyes and they're getting cancer and people just want lower prices. Then Walmart starts selling it. So as a troubadour, I'm not ever going to reach that level because there's only one of me. So I'm still at the golden age of capitalism where I have no safety net. There's no, I don't get money from the government to play these shows. Like, in Canada, they do. They get money right. to go tour to make yeah. records. Same with Australia. Our government, like when I hear that, because I'm originally from Canada, people are like, you should move back to Canada. You get grants to play. And I'm always like, I don't need a grant. If I'm good enough, I'm going to make it on my own because I have a certain pride that I don't want free money. I want to, I want to, I like earning it. I like the fact that a song, you can't touch it, but you can hear it. And that gets me paid. And if it's good enough, I'm going to get paid. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want anything free. Like I want to earn it because I like that. However, I, I would say that there's more, there's more to making, make, being able to make a living doing what you do uh, than just being good. I, uh, because I, I, I mean, there's, you have to have some sort of, uh, there are a lot there's there's business there's the business side of things there's the promotion side of things so it's it's not just like your your raw talent or, or alone or, or i should really say you're a fine talent but i mean you you would acknowledge that there are a lot of pieces that you know oh there's so much like why did jules why did jules career hit so big and mine didn't you know why do you think record labels or? well no, I think it's, I think the number one thing that people don't ever mention is it's timing. Okay. She came at a time. It's like, why did oh, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and everybody come out? It's like that book by Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers. A lot of it is where you are at the right time. And so she came up at a time when grunge was just ending. Nirvana came out, smashed what was happening in music. And then there became all these wannabe copy people. Like, um, I can't even think of their names now, but you know, like all these grunge bands that came out after Nirvana that a lot of people would make fun of and they go, Oh, this, they just made it real corporate now. Yeah. I think what I'm saying is the number one thing that I've seen is, so Jewel comes out 
And then all of a sudden, all these women are being played. And it's level spirits. You got Paula Cole, you got Joan Osborne, you got Jewel, you got Lisa Loeb, you got Cheryl Crow, and on and on and on. It was like all women. And she came, she had timing then. Like if that happened now, that wouldn't have been as big. So number one, I think it's timing and talent and a record label and a promotion machine. Like you were, you alluded to that earlier. Yes, all those things come into play. And so I don't have that. I have, I have like an audience, but I, I've hired publicists before to work a project, but I'm not on a label. I just have my own little label. I'm kind of a, I'm, I'm in my own little world as my own businessman running my own. I don't even have a manager. I have a booking agent, okay. which, which is great. I have a really good agent who I love. And that's the most important thing. An agent's like the hardest thing to get. And uh, I have been on labels before. How, how, uh, I heard you say though, I've heard you say that you, um, you much prefer to be independent because you don't well, have anyone telling you what to do or how to dress or what kind of music to write or how to perform. Exactly. But I do miss a label many times when I see friends that are on them. I'm like, man, I sort of yearn to have a big promotional team behind me and people taking care of stuff, but I'm really hard to manage and I'm hard to have on a label because once they start telling me what to do, I really take umbrage to it fast. And almost I have a hair trigger response. Like, don't fucking tell me what to do. This is when I'm up here, this is my time. So I'd rather be happy and have less success than be a a cog in a machine being told what to do. I'd, I'd just go crazy. Sure. Sure. They would take the soul away of it from, for me personally. So yeah, there are a lot of, like what you said, there are a lot of other factors that make things big. You, you tend to embody freedom from, from an outside perspective. When I see you perform uh, and just kind of see how you interact with the world, it, it, it seems like you know the fr freedom is is a, is an essence of your nature. Where where did that come from? Is that something that was always that you always had, or was that were you influenced by any figures that were like, yeah, I want to I want to live this way? Well, from playing all these little dive bars in the rug burns and starting on our own and putting out cassettes, recording them in my friend Rob Driscoll's garage, and we were making art all the time and. I was like, wow, if we could find a bar, we could play it every Friday night. There's this Irish pub. Let's make it our own. Maybe people will show up. And so when you hear about people like Steve Jobs or certain people that became billionaires, the funnest time they had was when they were building it. It uh -huh. wasn't really about the money. Like when you look at who's that guy, Warren Buffett, mm -hmm. like he still lives in not even a big house. And his wife gives him a little bit of money each morning to go to McDonald's. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding you. He'll say he'll buy an egg McMuffin and he'll get one with sausage on it if she gave him enough money. <laughs> so, like, he doesn't even oh, care about the money. It's uh, about it's but, like but McDonald's every morning. Come on. No, that's... I know, but I'm with you. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm just telling you, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just yeah, saying yeah. That's, I'm fascinated by stories like this. God, no, I wouldn't go there. I hate that place. Yeah. But it's just funny to me when you read about these people that really made it big, like Okay, Sam Walton from Walmart. Mm -hmm. When that guy started, he was in Arkansas. He was in Newport, Arkansas. 
he started a little store. He rented a spot from this guy. And then he realized, man, women's panties are costing me 40 cents a piece when I'm getting them in Fayetteville, Arkansas. But if I drive four states over in my station wagon, I'll drive all night and come back. I can get panties for 10 cents a piece. And if I put in an ice cream machine and give free ice cream cones, women will bring their kids in. Their kids will come in and they'll shop here. So it started really innocently. Like if you read about Sam Walton, yeah, he just was like, he was in the moment. Now, mind you, I'm not defending these people. I find them fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so he was in the moment, Sam Walton. And then he was making so much money at the store, the landlord saw what he was making. And he said, shit, I could take over the store. I own the lease. So he kicked him out. So Sam Walton moved to Bentonville and opened up Walton's Five and Dime. He eventually came back and put a Walmart in Newport. And just that town, that's all they had was a stupid-ass Walmart. Sam Walton would come in and work every day, wear overalls, drove the same shitty-ass Ford truck for 30 years. It's parked. They have like a museum of the first Walmart. Like, if you ever get a chance to go to Bentonville, it's fucking weird. It's like a company town with really state-of-the-art nice stuff because they hire all these graduates to work in the Walmart head offices. It's it's freaky. It's like a John, John Grisham novel. But I'm fascinated by his subcultures and things that go on in the world like this. So... I guess, like, when you... I'm friends with Steve Wozniak. I'm pretty close with him. He loves my music. He's flown me up to play, like, his 60th birthday party in the Museum of Technology in San Jose. And so when I go to dinner with Woz, he will tell me stories about his happiest moments were with Steve Jobs when they were in the garage. And they're making... They're coming up with these circuit boards and these ideas for the first Apple computer. And they're in the moment. It's about finding your bliss. And getting back to your question, because this is a long-winded answer, but I found my bliss creating art and not having anybody get involved. And if I can always stay in that golden moment of being in the garage, I've learned that's when I have happiness, because that gets back to what you said, which is complete freedom. So I've tried the corporate way. I've, I've been signed to a major label. I had a huge hit with Jewel. I've been on those kind of tours. And it was all fun. It was fun being on a major label. Man, I was written up in Rolling Stone. I got all that. But for whatever reason, my music didn't break through mm-hmm. the way Jason Mraz's did. Like Jason Mraz came from San Diego. He he shot up like a star the way Jewel did, you know? And part of it is he just had that voice. He had the goods. You know, he looked good. He had a big label behind him, a great management and timing. People were ready for a solo guy. And um, he had a huge hit that uh, I think it was like I'm Yours, it was called or something. Like it was a kind of reggae-ish beat. And when you see that show, you're going, wow, this guy's got this thing. And rather than be jealous about it, I want to look at it and celebrate it and go, wow, I know Jason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I tip, tip of the hat to you, dude. Good yeah. job. I don't want to hate things that are big. I want to go, that fucking guy nailed it. I want to study it and go, do I want to do this? No, I still like it, but that's not me. And maybe, like I said again, this is as big as my thing gets, but I'm in the golden age of capitalism, yeah. of being in flow and creating it. And it's a buzz seeing it grow, seeing like seeing that I get to play Kayamo Cruise. Like I still feel that the best days are ahead of me rather than I already had a huge hit career and now I'm on an oldies tour. Do you, do, and would you, would you, do you think there's a certain amount of durability to uh, doing it the way you're doing too, as far as 
I mean, I, I don't really know much about about what Jewel's up to these days, or you know, I ha I haven't heard her name much in the last twenty years, um, or fifteen, or what. And and not to say that I mean, she still might be playing to big crowds. I I really don't know. I'm just kind of don't really. She's not on my radar. Um, but do, do you think by doing it the grassroots way, where you're really building up a fan base over time and and touring constantly and and really making connections with the audience rather than kind of just these quick overnight uh, leaps enhanced by a label. Do you think if that comes down, you know, when that's over, which do, do you think somehow maybe you're in a, a more secure place than maybe somebody, uh, I, don't, I don't know if Jewel's the best example, but somebody that might have gotten a taste of that and then it passed them on. Well, I'd rather have my career than her career. Yeah. And she's had way way more heights than I'll ever get. Sure. Private jet tours, et cetera, you know, bodyguards, but she, she was way up high and now, you know, she's doing like, she'll play these casinos and do corporate gigs and stuff, right. which is fine. You know, she's making money, but to me, that's soul sucking. And if I was advising her, which I'm not, but when I see her, cause I can't believe she's playing salmon fest in Alaska, I will, probably corner her and say you need to go totally not that she's going to listen to me why would she but i would say if i was her manager i'd say you need to go totally back to your roots play all these little festivals don't worry about the money you know don't worry about any of that just play for cheap at these festivals and rebuild your fan base because her talent is insane when she sings people you you can't hold a candle to her when it's just her on a guitar mm -hmm. and she could build up because the shit she could do, she could tap into this whole jam band world of all these hippies and just like really rebuild an audience and be in touch. But I don't think that's what she's into. But that's the world that I I like and the world of uh, seeing it still build and and not having to be tethered to some hits or anything but right just I, was, always... I was just gonna say I, I imagine that in these casino and corporate gigs that she does she probably has to play all the same tunes that were hits for her 20 years ago every Dude, those night. corporate gigs suck yeah those casino gigs i i opened for a couple i did a tour with her about four or five years ago and the shows that were in theaters were so cool like when we did seattle like the Moore theater any that were regular theaters were awesome mm -hmm. casinos Dude, it was like one of the Dante's layers of hell to me. <laughs> Number one, that it was a casino. It just grosses yeah, me out. Yeah. The people that were coming grossed me out. They were just like drunk high rollers that would get comp tickets. They go, I want to hear You Were Meant For Me, which is fine because I co-wrote that song. So yeah, it's like, right. But I'm just looking at them going, this is not even the world I ever want to be in. This is hell to me because mm -hmm. it takes the soul out of the music. Like, the people that I like are like Neil Young, who gets to do whatever the hell he wants. Yeah. He can do a record of feedback. He can then do a country record, do a techno record. He'll do whatever the hell he wants. And so I think you can lose touch with your muse and which makes you creative if you become tethered to the hits and you're just playing an oldies tour. That's not good. Yep. I, I uh, another band that just came to mind when you talked about Neil Young, and and it probably might be good to touch on this because I think you have a fascinating anecdote. Is uh, the Grateful Dead? I'm uh, I'm I'm kind of tied into that world. Um, I you know I I 
play with uh, Phil Lesh and friends and and other um, kind of people in the, in that in that world. And I think some of the listeners of this podcast probably have ties to that too. But I, I know you've told it before, but maybe if you just want to um, say a little about um, your relationship uh, with that band and post post stroke. Yeah, well, with the dead, like they were always. I always knew who they were. I'm not an idiot or anything, but sure. they weren't really on my radar because, like in the '70s, I was probably listening to Pink Floyd, and then a lot of James Taylor, and then Earth and Fire, and then my sister went to college radio and got a job as a DJ, and she turned me on to punk rock. So I got into the Dickies, the Sex Pistols, the Ramones. And then Elvis Costello and New Wave and Pop New Wave, like the Knack. And so the Dead, like, were just something like, oh, yeah, the Grateful Dead, Stoners. Like, I wasn't, I didn't really know a lot about their music. I knew, obviously, Jerry Garcia was, but I didn't hate them. They just, they weren't really in my consciousness. And then I had that stroke. I had a stroke on stage in a, Wilmington, Delaware. That's, that's crazy. How does that, not to get too sidetracked, but how did, how did that happen? Is your health okay? Are you okay now? Yeah, I'm fine. The weird, the, it's kind of like the doctor said, the good news is we don't know why this happened, but the bad news is we don't know why this happened. Right. So to this day, they don't know why it happened because he said your heart, and these were his exact words. He goes, your heart is like the heart of a 15 year old. It's totally mm. healthy. Like they mm. went down and did, did this thing it was kind of cool because I got all these tests done that I would never gotten done. Like they did it. It's called the transesophageal ultrasound where they go down your throat into your heart and scope out your whole heart. And they were like, your heart is perfect. And you had no, I had no blockages in my arteries, my cholesterol level. He said I was an outlier for my age, that it was beyond perfect. I don't drink. I take no drugs. And so, he said, we don't know why this happened. And I said, you know, was I drinking too much coffee? I was like looking for anything. He goes, no. And uh, so he said, and then all the natural paths that I know said, you were just overworking yourself and you were stressed out. And doctors will say, Western doctors will say, that's bullshit. There's no um, data that can say stress is going to cause this because they're like more like, what is stress? Like they need they need a reason, a scientific reason. So yeah. there's two ways of looking at things. There's Western and more like, you know, you can just have a stroke. Your body went on strike. So they don't know why it happened, but I was on stage and everything just was like flipping out in my eyes and I couldn't see. And then I just went blind. It was like my vision got shut off and I was like, whoa. And I remember being on stage and going, I'm fucking blind. This is so weird. And then it was like shifting back in and, and I was having the stroke on stage not knowing what's going on i'm having a stroke it doesn't hurt were you narrating just, to the audience any of your experience or communicating no i i didn't tell them i was still doing the show okay i was like must complete task do not tell audience like i i couldn't i was like all i was thinking was must finish show then maybe go to doctor <laughs> like but don't tell audience don't want to upset them and then so then I finally said to the audience, like I, I played a little while and I finally said, can you guys see or is it dark in here? Are the lights on? I can't see. <laughs> and then, then every, the audience was like, yeah, we can see. What are you talking about? And then I was just doing the second verse to this song, this old Rugburn song. 
And I did it like five times in a row. I just kept repeating the verse. And the audience was like, what the, what is going on here? And then they thought I was kidding. And sure. then I finished the show. I just said, I got to stop. I can't see. I'm about to faint. And then people came up. The funny thing is they weren't like, we've got to get you to the hospital. They were like, can you sign this record? Can I take a picture with you? <laughs> <laughs> Did they still think it was part of the show? They were just like thought, maybe he's not feeling good, but I'm getting my picture taken Yeah, totally. So these guys get their picture taken with me. And then I was like, I got to go to the doctors, but I couldn't see very well. And then these people drove me there, and that's when I heard I had a stroke. So I was in the stroke ward for like seven days. Jeez. And it was weird because when my vision came back, they were trying to have me fill out stuff, insurance stuff, and I couldn't read. Like, I was like, I don't even know what these letters mean. Wow. It's like I had a full-blown stroke. Wow. And then, but I had no paralyzation or anything. It was like mine was in my um, thalamus region of the brain, which makes which affects your vision. And so then I got out. and I, I came back to San Diego, and I was in this car, and this guy was driving around. And he had like some Grateful Dead bootlegs, this hippie dude. And I was like, this is so good. Who is this? And I think it was like a live version of Ripple or something. He goes, oh, it's a Grateful Dead. And I just went, whoa, do you have more of this? And he said, yeah. And we were on like this long drive going somewhere to get some food. and Because I wasn't allowed to drive yet when I got out because I had a stroke. And then we just listened to a bunch of dead and then I came home and just got totally into the dead and started learning their songs. It was like, so I always tell the audience it took a stroke to get me into the dead. It's like, certain, and then I got really mindset. Yeah. It was like, cause since the stroke, I feel like I'm kind of stoned. Like I, I'm, I, it changed me a way. And so then I got really into the dead and Jerry Garcia and the, the pizza tapes and mm. with Tony Rice and Olden in the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm constantly discovering new stuff and like I'll learn a new, like the way that I'll listen to a Sly and the Family Stone song 200 times. I'll listen to Franklin's Tower 300 times and then do it on stage. So you've, you've been, you've actually been covering some, some dead songs? Yeah, I do Franklin's Tower. I do a really cool version of Peggy O. Oh, nice. I do, I do Ripple. I do Uncle John's Band. I'm learning Deal. The nice. Jerry Garcia yeah. song. I'm learning uh, China Cat Sunflower because it's so interesting to me. And uh, I do uh, um, that really popular one, Driving That, Casey Jones. Casey Jones yeah. And uh, just because I love the vibe of that, mm-hmm. that gets audiences going nuts. Yeah, sure. And uh, so, yeah, I've been learning a bunch of dead songs. And it's really fun because... Those words to like when I do broke down palace, mm-hmm. holy shit! Yeah, that stuff that's is beautiful. powerful. Absolutely, and I I do a really lilting, cool version of that one, and I feel the same way about Uncle John's band and the words to Franklin's Tower when he says, when Robert Hunter says, uh, "Some come to laugh, they're passed away. Some come to make it just one more day." Whichever way your pleasure tends, if you plant ice, you're gonna harvest wind. Mm. Oh, that kills me because I think of friends of mine that died of cancer and they're like, some come to laugh, they're passed away. Some come to make it just, I think of all my friends I've lost. Every time I say that line, some, I'm not fucking around when I sing that shit. Like, yeah. I, I'm like, I feel like Robert Hunter, when he made those lyrics, he 
it's like a torch or a relay being passed to whoever's seeing it. If you really, if you really mean it and you, you're not fucking around, he's handing you those lyrics and they're a gift and they're meant to be handed down over the years. And like, there's wisdom in that. The same way I feel about Towns Van Zandt, his lyrics, like these are our teachers. Steve, you don't have a, you're not by a guitar, are you? Me? Yeah. Do you feel like singing a song? Sure. Yeah. That'd be great. All right, cool. Here goes. You ready? Uh, yes. Carmel sky painted across the clouds. Somebody's struggling, but everyone's allowed. If you're gonna reach, reach for the stars. Pack yourself a lunch and some antique jars. Celebrate your fears and celebrate your scars. You've earned everyone, you're a shiny old car. Shine on, shine on, shine on. You got the Mercedes covered up with rust. Champagne fizz from the boom to the bust. From a faraway farm. See the California gold Chasing down a dream You just can't be sold Celebrate life Let it all fall free Kick off your shoes And wiggle your feet And shine on Shine on, shine on. Feel the feel, taste what's real, jump in the ocean, and bark like a seal, and if you're gonna reach, reach for the sky, smile at a stranger, let the tears fly. Celebrate peace, don't pick fights, communicate love, turn on your light, shine on, shine on, 
shine on. Yeah, man, that's beautiful. Thanks. Thank you. I that was that was. Thank you. That I I felt very very lucky just now. <laughs> Get a private right private concert from you. That was really sweet. Thank you. Cool. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for for talking. This is um, I really enjoyed really enjoyed getting to spend a little uh, phone time with you. Thank you so much. And there you have it. That's uh, Mr. Steve Holtz for you. I think you uh, can get a good sense of uh, what he's all about, uh, perhaps through that interview or a better sense if you weren't familiar with him before. Um, I'm just going to say one other thing, which is um, for those uh, Grateful Dead fans in the house, uh, also known as Deadheads, if you enjoyed that last little bit of us rambling about uh, the Grateful Dead, um, there's actually, we go on for a few more minutes there and kind of dork out about uh, the Grateful Dead and some of Robert Hunter's lyrics, and, and Steve shares a little bit more about what some of those mean to him. And uh, I didn't include it in this in this podcast just to not alienate uh, and spend, you know, six minutes on talking about the dead for people that don't care about the dead. And I know which there are many, um, but for those of you who do and want a little more of that, I am including it uh, as a few-minute bonus segment um, that if you go to my website, ezralip.com backslash podcast, where you'll find uh, this episode as well as all the previous episodes, um, and you click on the episode uh, or the blog with Steve Poltz, this episode, um, at the end of the little bio, I'm going to include uh, an additional audio link where you can hear that last few minutes as a bonus. While you're there, you might as well sign up for my newsletter, right? Great. Okay. You can do that. Go to the Connect page. I should mention one other thing about uh, Steve, which is he also has a podcast um, that uh, I actually learned after we conducted this interview, so I didn't didn't get to we didn't get to talk about it um but it's called one hit neighbors and he co-hosts it with scott Sachs. um and the premise is that they've both um in the last 20 years have written uh about one <laughs> worldwide hit in in their respective genres um and they coincidentally both moved to east nashville together and became next door neighbors and bring other musicians uh um, into their studio and uh, have conversations um, similar to uh, the Ezra Lip Hour, more or less. So anyway, you could check out One Hit Neighbors as well if you're into more music podcasts. Um, again, thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to leave a review on iTunes, spread this far and wide on social media. It's a brand new podcast. I could use all your uh, support as well as your feedback, so don't be shy. Let me know what you think of the show. Uh, hit me up on Facebook, on Instagram, at EzraLip at Gmail or the Ezra Lip Hour at Gmail. I'm very easy to find if you Google me and choose your format. Um, anyway, thank you so much, Steve, again for coming on. And I will see you all uh, probably next week again with another great guest and episode. Thank you so much. Take care.